have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn with me to Psalm 107, please. Psalm 107. going to read the first 16 verses. If you're able to stand with me as we read these verses, as we read the Word of God, it's good for us to stand sometimes and just in acknowledgement that we're reading the Word of God. So I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Psalm 107 verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered him from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till he reached a city to dwell in. Let them... Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Amen. Please be seated, everyone. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we, before we look at the Word of God together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your Word is written and that you have spoken to us through it and that you've not left us to flounder in darkness, but you've given us light. And Lord, we are acknowledging before you this day that we are recipients of the grace of God, that you have opened our eyes to behold something of the beauty of the Lord, even as we've opened the pages of Scripture. We thank you that your light has shined upon the page and that, Lord, you've revealed more of the loveliness and beauty and radiance and glory and power and majesty and justice of our God. Lord, thank you for not leaving us in darkness. But Lord, we want to acknowledge also that we are desperately in need of more light in our lives, Lord. We're desperately in need of your truth to be about us and to be in us. And we would ask of you, Lord, to not leave us where we are up to, but the Lord, in your mercy and grace, you would continue to unfold your word to us. Lord, we know it is the entrance of your words that gives light. So we're asking you, Lord, in your mercy and your grace this morning, that your word would get into us and, uh, Lord, become a part of us. 
Lord, we pray for the anointing that's so necessary upon the speaking of your word and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would prevent anything of the flesh getting in the way of the message and that, Lord, you would graciously be pour out in, in your mercy and grace your word to your people by the power and enabling of your spirit. We look to you for all these things, Father, and we will be careful to give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I was away last week at a conference, um, as were some of you also, um, in, uh, in Shropshire. And just before the conference, I had started to look at Psalm 107, and I felt that this passage was opening up to me for a particular purpose. And so um, the Lord had laid this on my heart, and I shared it with the folks at one point during the conference last weekend. But even as I was praying earlier this morning, I sensed um, that the Lord draw my heart back to this passage again, and that it would be right for us to look at it this morning with you also. Um, and so apologies for those who've heard this message already. I trust uh, that it will still be a blessing to you, and the Lord would still touch your heart through it. Um, often, even if you give the same message somewhere else, it's never quite the same. And the Lord highlights something else often uh, when we do this, at least when it's under the instruction of God's Spirit. So I felt really the burden of my heart is to bring this message on the loving kindness of the Lord to you. That's why, in a sense, we were focusing our worship on the loving kindness of God, to set our hearts ready to be able to think about this wonderful theme that really goes throughout this whole um, psalm. And we have a number of examples of how the Lord met with his people throughout this psalm and showed his loving kindness to them. In fact, there's four examples that the psalmist gives throughout this psalm on the theme of the loving kindness of God. And in fact, he ends the psalm by saying this in verse 43, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So in a sense, this psalm is all about the different aspects of the steadfast love of God. And it's very easy just to read through this psalm and feel that we know what the loving kindness of God is, but it takes careful meditation to consider different aspects of what the psalmist takes up in this particular psalm to understand the nature of the Lord's mercy, his steadfast love. So let's begin at the beginning and go to verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now notice the psalmist begins with a word of command, really, exhortation, speaking to the people of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And you know, this is such an important statement for every believer within the body of Christ. Every one of you hearing this message, it's so important what I'm just going to say to you now. Unless you cultivate a heart of thanksgiving in your life, by means of grace, of course, and the Lord's mercy, there be, the, the void will make room for bitterness. And you will simply think about things that are 
against you all the time. And even as Christians, we can do this, can't we? Some of us have had some really hard knocks in the Christian faith. And if we're not careful, all we do is meditate on things that have gone wrong for us and things that have been difficult. And it, isn't it interesting that it takes a little bit of work for us to get through to a place where we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving? And yet we are commanded in the Word of God to be those that give thanks, aren't we? You remember what even Paul said in Philippians 4 concerning um, issues we need to bring to the Lord in prayer. He says to do it with thanksgiving. All our prayers are not simply meant to be complaints to the Lord. But as we bring our burden and our complaint to God, let us also be thankful to him. Because, brothers and sisters, you know, everything around about us isn't giving thanks to God. Nobody else is going to help you do this. This is something that you've got to learn for yourself. You've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you've got to be careful because in the world, round about, all you hear is what is cynical, don't you? And what is... People are always complaining, so often complaining, aren't we? You hear people outside, we complain about our job, we complain about our wage, we complain about the home, we complain about the family, we complain about everything. But in the house of God, the people of God, are we not meant to be different? Have we not something to be glad about? Do you know, brothers and sisters, I don't say this to condemn you, I really don't. I'm saying this as an exhortation for you. This will help you. This will be a means of deliverance for your soul. Actually, it would be medicine to you. Because whenever you obey the commands of God, it only leads to good. Only leads to good. So start thanking God. You know, each morning, Lord, thank you for waking me up this morning. Even if it's Monday morning and it's raining outside and you don't feel your best and you've got a long week of work ahead of you, begin by thanking the Lord. Come in here. Lord, thank you. This is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's a choice. It's a choice. You don't have to feel marvelous about things. I'm not asking you to wake up in the Monday morning and suddenly feel wonderful that it's raining outside and you've got to go to work. I'm not talking about that. This isn't about feelings. It's about an act of the will. And actually, you, if you cultivate this kind of lifestyle... You'll be so much more of a blessing to everybody else <laughs> because they won't hear the end of the complaints all the time. I particularly say about your husband and your wife. I mean, you may not complain as you come here because, well, we're a little bit more on guard, aren't we, in church? But it's amazing how we let our guard down most of the people we love most. <laughs> Let's learn to be thankful to God. Because thankfulness delivers you from being irritable. I once read in a little leaflet that was very challenging about different sins in this leaflet. One of the sins was being irritable. I thought, that's not fair. I, I want to be allowed to be, at least allow me to be irritable. You know, now and again, I don't feel great. I should have the right to feel irritable when I've stubbed my toe. And it's nobody else's fault. But isn't it amazing how when something goes wrong, you just want to share that love of irritability with everybody else. Did you ever look through Jesus' life and thought, 
when you read through the Gospels. He's a bit irritable here. He was moaning here and there and always complaining. Why is Jesus doing that? You never find that, do you? He's always speaking what the Father gives him to speak. There doesn't seem to be any form of personal bitterness and hatred rising up within him. The only thing where he, that he hates is what is unrighteous and he handles it in a righteous way. Amazing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. I want to encourage each one of us, including the preacher this morning, and anybody watching this message on YouTube, learn as a believer to give thanks, even in all circumstances. It's not easy to do that. I'm not saying that this is going to be an easy journey, but it's about wanting to live righteously, isn't it? We often say, well, it, important sins to deal with and make sure we're not into immorality. And that's true. Be far from immorality, anything immoral. But it's as though we condone sins that God also doesn't concern, uh, condone. Like irritability. <laughs> or just getting angry off the cuff, losing our temper. These kind of things. Why do we do them? Very often, we are not cultivating this thankful heart. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, I'm not condemning you. I'm speaking to my own heart this morning, and I'm exhorting you. This is a better way. And I've never found complaining to get me anywhere. And yet I still do it again and again. Isn't it amazing? Complaining, you know, in the flesh, it doesn't do anything. It just winds everybody else up. But a joyful heart is good medicine. Good medicine. Cultivate it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. So the psalmist is now giving reason why we're to give thanks to God. For, his, for he is good. He makes extension upon that by saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. In fact, the word endures there is not in the original Hebrew. It's actually something of an interpretation put in for us to understand it. But essentially what it says is, for his steadfast love Forever. I love that. His steadfast love forever. No beginning. No end. No stopping. Always going on. Why is that? Because God is love. He can't be anything else. His steadfast love forever because God is forever. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalmist says this, without beginning of days or end of life, God is eternal, and therefore his love is eternal. Everything that comes forth from him is of him, and therefore, by nature, love with God had no beginning. And it will have no end. Hallelujah. This is the marvelous thing about the steadfast love of the Lord. It's glorious, and it is forever. Look at verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Or it can be translated, from the hand of the foe. So now the psalmist is expressing further the nature of this steadfast love. He's saying, let the redeemed of the Lord say, say, whom he has redeemed from trouble. 
This is a marvelous thing for us to take note of, this matter of redemption, because it goes right through the Word of God. And the word redeemed, you know what it means, don't you? To pay a price in order to secure the releasing of something or someone. And you find this throughout the Old Testament, friends. Brothers and sisters, don't just read the New Testament to understand the gospel. Read the Old as well. Read both. Read through the whole counsel of God so you get a greater understanding of the themes of the gospel which are found in the Old Testament as well as the New. This word, redeemed, means it connotes the idea of paying what is required in order to liberate from oppression, enslavement, or another type of binding obligation. In the New Testament, it also speaks of liberating or to ransom, which was at the heart of the gospel message, really, something of why Jesus came. We read in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came, to give his life a ransom for many. This word redeemed, in other Greek words that's used for it, translated redeemed in English in our New Testament, also means to buy at the marketplace or to redeem. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says this. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. Going to read from the end of, let's read from verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why is that? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the context of this particular passage has to do with moral living as believers. But notice the reality of that truth. You are not your own. You, You were not your own before you became a Christian either. You've never been your own. Many people live their lives as though their lives belong to them, unbeliever and believers alike. But the unbeliever doesn't realize he's sold under sin. He's enslaved and in bondage to sin and is under the authority of the powers of darkness. The unbeliever's mind is blinded by the God of this world. And they live their lives according to the course of the spirits that are at work against the purposes of God. That's what they do. And they're not even aware they're governed by these things. You know, it's quite interesting. When you think of people who've been in high authority, at first who seemed reasonable, and then suddenly went into such wickedness and godlessness, it wasn't simply what they were doing off their own back. There was often demonic powers behind them, pushing them along that path. For example, Adolf Hitler. People who are not Christians are not free. It's one of the great lies that is in their mind and hearts. I want to live how I want to live. But you don't. You're in bondage to what the enemy would say. 
So when God redeems a people, what has he done? He's brought them out of slavery to the powers of darkness and sin, not so that they can be free to be whatever they want to be. He's brought them out and he's brought them so they now belong to him, so that each one of us as believers might be slaves to God. Do you realize that? Do you realize you are not your own this morning? You don't belong to yourself. You belong to King Jesus. You've been bought with a price. You're his. And there's no better person to belong to. There's no better shepherd to be led by. There's no other authority to be under. The greatest blessing is to be a slave and servant of Jesus Christ. Because remember what he said to the people in Matthew. Come to me. Come to me. I will give you what? Work? Rest. <laughs> come to me and I'll give you hard labor. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Right. So when you see Christians striving according to their flesh and adding every other law under the sun that they can to the word of God, something's gone wrong. You know, actually, the wonderful thing about the work of the Lord is it can be very intense, but with the work of the Lord is the grace to do what he commands you to do. And so that though you feel you might be striving in it, at the same time you don't feel you're striving in it. There's a rest within the work. When you try and take on another Christian's burden that the Lord has laid on them, then you'll find that things get a bit tough. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the Lord Jesus has said himself to us. So to be enslaved to Jesus isn't to be in some regime that will ultimately break you to the point where you're not able to do anything. The wonderful thing about being under the Lord Jesus is he only gives you what you can handle at any given time. And with that gives the grace to do what he requires of you. For me, one of the most precious passages in the word of God is one that we often skate over. But I love it when the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, there's many things that I would tell you, but you're not able to take them yet. And I just think that's beautiful. The Lord knows where the disciples are up to. He knows what they can handle. He wants to share things with them, but he withholds that on the basis of knowing where they're at to bring them on ultimately to be able to share these things. This is the heart of the Lord, isn't it? He doesn't, he's not a slave driver. He's a shepherd. Slave drivers drive people. The Lord Jesus leads his flock. Be careful of obeying a slave-driving voice in your mind. Don't listen to that. You must be careful that you just obey the voice of the Lord Jesus. Because even if there's things that the Lord requires of you that are hard for you to bear, you'll have a peace about what he shares with you through his word, by his spirit. But if, on the other hand, you're being driven by a voice that's constantly pushing you, be careful that you're listening to the right person. Remember, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. 
Don't listen to those that are going to drive you and strain you and get you ultimately working in the flesh, which profits nothing, actually. If you give your body to be burnt but haven't love, it doesn't amount to anything. So everything depends on the origin of the action or the work. And you'll find that when the Lord originates the work in you, there'll be an ability to endure, to press through, to press in, and to overcome. Because that's the nature of our God. Blessed be his name. Well, friends, that's what we call a little aside, isn't it? To the main point of the message. But it's all wrapped up in this overarching truth of the Lord's loving kindness that is towards his people. Back to Psalm 107 then. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And this is a wonderful thing. When you come out of being enslaved, you belong to the Lord. And you never find the Lord brings you trouble in the wrong sense of the word. There's always difficulty and hardship. It's not easy being a follower of Jesus. But you've been delivered from the clutches of the grip of Satan himself and the powers of darkness. What more could you want? I mean, you are saved from Satan ruling your life now. That's a tremendous blessing. Tremendous blessing. In verse 3, the psalmist goes on to say, And gathered in from the lands, from the east, and from the west, from the north, and from the south. Now the word gathered here means to take hold of. And C.H. Spurgeon makes a really good point on this passage. He says that gathering follows upon redeeming. Notice the order, redeeming and then gathering. The Lord redeems, and then he gathers. Spurgeon goes on to say this. The captives of old were restored to their own land from every quarter of the earth and even beyond the sea. What a glorious shepherd must it be who thus collects the blood-bought flock from the remotest regions, guides them through countless perils, and at last makes them to lie down in green pastures of paradise. Spurgeon puts things so well, doesn't he? He redeems and then he collects the redeemed. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, we've been bought from every tribe, tongue, and nation, redeemed by the work of the cross. It's only through what Jesus has done at Calvary that anybody is redeemed because Jesus paid the price for the redemption of the souls of many, the word of God says. We sung earlier about God has paid the price. Isn't that an amazing fact this morning? God, he's the only one that could do it. The price was too high. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't get ourselves out of being enslaved to sin, the devil, or our own lustful condition. We couldn't get out of it. We were in sin. There was absolutely no way out of being in bondage to darkness, friends. 
And it required the Lord Jesus to come. And the scriptures say he came to save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. And a body was prepared for him, the word of God says. And he came. And he went through this life sinlessly, doing everything that the Father required of him. So that when he went to that cross, through his shed blood, poured out blood, we might be redeemed back to God. This is the wonder of redemption. You cannot be redeemed by gold or silver or by any works that you have done. The only means of redemption is the purchasing of that by Jesus on the cross. He came to save his people from their sin. This is why he came, to redeem us, to bring us back, to gather us. This is the wonderful thing. This gathering, this bringing in from all places around the globe speaks of God's people Israel, bringing them back to the land. They had rebelled against God, but God in his mercy and grace was bringing them back to himself. We as a human race as well, have we not rebelled against God? We surely have. And yet God has redeemed a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and verse 9. And that by means of the blood. That by means of the blood. The gathering comes after the blood being shed. So, brothers and sisters, let's move on in this passage. Verse 4. Going to read verse 4 into verse 8. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Here's the first example that the psalmist gives of God's loving kindness in a kind of biography type way with the children of Israel. And I want you to notice something about it that is significant. Notice in verse 4, it says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Now, you know, one might say to oneself, why is it then, if these are the people of God, they're, they're wandering about, they're getting no kind of blessing from the Lord, Yet they're the people of God. Why is it that the Lord allowed this to take place? Why doesn't he stop? Why doesn't he intervene? And the answer is the Lord was allowing them to find themselves in want in order to bring them to an end of themselves. And that is something of the loving kindness of God. You see, if you have everything you want on the plate, the terrible thing is, not many of us would call to the Lord for help, would we? But haven't you found that your prayers begin to up when you're in trouble? Haven't you found that when there's no resources, you've suddenly started crying out to the Lord in a way you hadn't been for weeks before? What was the Lord doing? Was he being mean? Is the Lord mean-spirited to his people? Does he withhold blessing from his people? Surely he gives to them all things freely. Why is it that the people of God here are not experiencing the blessing of God? And the Lord is doing something. And it's in his loving kindness. Often we withhold things from others, sometimes because there can be a malicious 
element in our hearts. We want to pay people back for the way they've treated us. God isn't like that. God is not like man. When he withholds blessing, it's for a purpose. When he brings his judgments on the earth, it's so that the inhabitants learn righteousness. And when the Lord disciplines his children by withholding blessing, it's because he's wanting to bring them back from their erring ways and stir their hearts afresh to call on his name. That's why God does it, friends. He allowed them to be hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. And God's not moving here until something happens. What is it? Verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. It takes us often so long to get to the place where we call on the Lord, doesn't it? We'll be happy. We'll be wandering through places, deserts, all kinds of difficulties. I mean, the Lord must look and wonder, why did my children not call to me? Is it unbelief? Certainly can be. But this particular verse speaks about them hungering and thirsting. There's souls fainting within them. Then they cry to the Lord. You see, the Lord allows there to be a withholding of blessing and provision in order to elicit from his own people the cry that will be the ultimate means of him pouring his grace on them. Do you see? This is the loving kindness of God, friends. If you spoil your children, you are making a rod for your own back. But if you discipline them, if you correct them, if you give limitations on what they can do and can't do, if you train them early in the ways of righteousness, they're going to be much more pleasant, by and large, to live with had you not done so. The Lord is no different. The, we are the children of the Lord, and he disciplines those whom he loves. The word of God clo- shows us clearly, actually, if you are without correction from the Lord in your life, in your personal experience, the scriptures are as strong as to say you're illegitimate. You're not a true child of God. Now that sounds very strong, doesn't it? But that should cause us to deeply desire the Lord restraining our godlessness and the Lord limiting our provisions that we lay hold of that are independent of his purposes. We need the Lord to actually rein us in. I need that. I need the Lord to rein me in. You need the Lord to rein you in at times. And the Lord is doing this work of discipline, not simply so we learn a lesson, but so that we're changed. This is the point of discipline. It's not simply so we've learnt one lesson and then we can go on our merry way. The purpose of discipline is so that we are actually altered in a way that will last forever. That's the purpose of divine discipline in our lives. Because God is conforming us to the image of his Son. His purpose is to change you, to mold you, to cause you to think differently, to begin to be aware when your thoughts are in um, harmony with the world rather than in harmony with the word of God. Only the Lord can reveal that to you. Of course, if you're not reading the word of God, friends, if you're not meditating on the scriptures, if you're not reading through them, you're living your Christian life with the light bulb off. It's as though you're just walking in, in, in choice. 
to have minimal fellowship with God. Why would you want to do that? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Every word. So if your life depends on it, surely you'll be into this book. Reading it, studying it, realizing what God is doing. He's, in his loving kindness, he's allowing hardship perhaps for some of you in order to train you and mold you and make you. You say, that doesn't sound very loving to me. Well, then you have a wrong concept of love. The world's concept of love is everything sugary, flowery, sentimental, and all plastic, quite honestly. The love of the world today is not biblical love, and it's not true love. It really often just amounts to lust. But the love of God is not syrupy, not sugary, not sentimental, like that, though it is not without emotion. But it is not that when we do things wrong and we go our own way, the Lord will say, oh, there, there, my dear child, don't worry about these things you're doing wrong. Come back into the fold and I'm happy to accept you as you are. That's not what the Word of God says. The love of God endures. The love of God is steadfast. The love of God is determined. Okay? God's love is not sugary and sentimental. He will shake and break and turn your little world upside down if necessary just to ultimately get you. That's what he does. You say, why does he go to that length? Well, he's already gone to such lengths. He's died for you on the cross. Do you think he's going to treat you any differently? He'll even risk your misunderstanding, his work of grace in your life, just so that ultimately he has you. The wounds of the friend are good wounds. But you don't want the kisses of an enemy, do you? <laughs> the wounds of a friend are good wounds. Bear them. Has the Lord been allowing a few strokes across your back? Bear it. It's not malicious. The enemy will bring his counter-commentary upon what God is doing. Ah, oh, God's finished with you now. You see, you did this and that. You're finished. You're not worthy enough. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. Look at everybody else around you. They're all living holy lives, but look at you. You see how the enemy gets the servant of God to look upon himself. The secret to deliverance from such condemnation is to say, Yes, I am all these things of myself. Yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And you have no grounds of condemnation against Christ. Be gone, the blood avails for me. That's it. There's nothing the enemy can do against the blood. If he can get you turning in on yourself, and he'll do everything he can from getting you looking at Jesus Christ. Because he knows one look at Christ as your mediator, as your head, as your sanctifier, as your covering, as your keeper, as your high priest. If the enemy can get you thinking away from those things, he knows he can condemn you. Because you look inward and you see there's difference between you and Jesus. Ah, but the truth of the matter is, it's no longer I that liveth, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me. He died for me. And Romans 8 tells me that I'm no longer condemned. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There's no answer. There's no way round. There's no way Satan can point at anything Jesus has done. Because everything Jesus has done has been absolutely perfect. And you are not clothed in your own righteousness or in your filthy rags of self-righteousness anymore if you're born of the Spirit. You are clothed in the goodness and beauty and holiness of the Lord Jesus. His righteousness, not yours, his righteousness is what you're clothed with now, isn't it? Oh, praise God. The enemy will always try and bring a bad word to your door on account of the trouble you find yourself in as a believer. But even our difficulties are used by God to bring us back to himself, to bring us at times to our senses. You remember the prodigal son? What a backsliding that is, isn't it? But he came to his senses. When what? When he'd come to his lowest ebb. is with the pigs. is with the pigs. God, if we run from God as his people, God knows how to get us to the point where we're with the pigs. And quite honestly, it's the best place for us to get to. So that we realize our need. I need to return to my father. That cry comes up from God. Hallelujah. Verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and hungry soul, he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They had rebelled against the word of the Lord. They had spurned his counsel, and so the Lord allows them to know what it is to be under a regime that is contrary to his very desire for his people. Sometimes the Lord hands us over to our desires for a while just to see that there's no good in them. Sometimes that happens. Here it's talking about the people of God coming under other governance. They fell down with none to help. There was nobody to deliver the people of God. The Lord allowed them to be led in such a way. Why? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Oh, friends, can't you see the loving kindness of God, even in allowing the people of God to go through such difficulty? Octavius Winslow, a great Bible teacher, who was a contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon, and who also spoke at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, said this, it is because we have such shallow views of God's love that we have such defective views of God's dealings. We, we blindly interpret the symbols of his providence because we so imperfectly read the engravings of his heart. That's very well put, and that's it's so true. Have you a shallow view of God's love this morning? It's as though God is in heaven for you and God reigns for you 
and everything, the angels are meant to just go forth for you and everything's meant to be hunky-dory in, in your Christian life. You're meant to be experiencing your best life now, <clears throat> to quote somebody. But the truth of the matter is what? The Lord will allow hardship, difficulty. We'll go on a difficult path. And God's dealing with you. There's shortage of time. He needs to work on you. And so he lovingly allows any erring in our own heart to be dealt with, sometimes by hard knocks, in order that we go back in the way. You remember what the psalmist said? I think it's in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What a testimony. You see, the Lord didn't let the psalmist get away with going astray. Before you went, to, before you, before I went astray, sorry, I, no, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Well, praise God for that kind of affliction. That's the sort of work that we need in our lives. And it's part of the loving kindness of God. It's come to an end. Notice what it says in verse 15. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Brothers and sisters, this is the wonderful work of God. Even in our foolishness, we can go astray and find ourselves in restrictions and difficulties and hardship. But when we call out to the Lord... Praise God. His power is such that he's able to shatter the doors of bronze and cut into the bars of iron. Only God can do that. But thank God he can. Verse 17, 22 to 22. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. This is the mercy of God, brothers and sisters. Think about that. Think about that. They were fools, the Bible says. It's not my interpretation. I'm just reiterating what the scriptures say. They suffered affliction because of their iniquity. And they drew near to the gates of death. They loathed any food. Then they cried to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. But then the scripture goes on to show us how he did it. He sent out his words and healed them. The Lord is able to send out his word to you. Whatever your situation is this day, God is able to send out his word to you. And I promise you, the word of God that's sent out to heal will heal. The word of God, it does. Every time God has sent me a word, and there's been an, sometimes when the Lord has brought a word of healing in one way or another, every time that word is healed, every single time, I stand on the authority of Scripture and my own experience of this truth, that when God sends out his word to heal, it does exactly that. Cry out to God. If you need healing, you're broken hearted. 
whatever it may be. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. Whatever your situation may be, God is able to break the bars that you're, that you're behind. He's able to loose you. He's able to heal you. He's able to deliver you. And it's all because of his loving kindness that endures forever. Marvelous. He sent his word out and, he, and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Okay. Look at verse 22. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Verse 23. Some went out to the, to the sea of, in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. The Hebrew apparently means, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. Verse 28 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. When they come to an end of all their wisdom, all their ability, all their agility, all the strength that they had to keep themselves afloat, as it were, then they cried to the Lord. And the Lord delivered them. Isn't that an amazing verse? Praise God. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Love it. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven, place of rest and refuge. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work. To the children of man. Let them exalt him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This is a marvelous passage. The next passage of scripture is a bit different. It's talking about of God's dealings with in blessing and in judgment. But those four examples that I've given to you regarding the people of God are demonstrations to the people of God throughout all ages of the nature of the loving kindness of God. And therefore, brothers and sisters, maybe you're going through it. Maybe you're finding things difficult yourself. God will use it. Maybe it's not a result of sin, but it's something else. God has allowed hardship in your life. Don't allow that affliction to become your be-all and end-all. By which I mean, don't allow the goal of your life to become deliverance from any difficulty. But actually the Lord might be using that difficulty to deal with you. Think of Paul the Apostle. He inquired of the Lord a number of times to take the thorn out of his flesh and the Lord wouldn't do it. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And sometimes what the Lord does is actually keep his people low to a level whereby they cannot be confident in and of themselves. They have to continually rely on God. And it's a mercy, because otherwise they would rely on themselves and begin to go away that was perhaps not according to God's purpose. You know, the Lord never restrains in a malicious 
way to provoke his own children. But the Lord actually allows some of these difficulties, some of these straits, some of these hardships in order to get us to a place where we're closer to him and where we have to depend on him more and more and more and more. Why? Why is he doing it? Because he loves us. He draws us with cords of kindness. He leads us. He directs our steps. He instructs us in the way because of his great love for us. I just want to end with um, just something of the, Lord, the nature of the Lord's love to, for you to finish off with. Please turn with me, finally, to the book of Hosea. And chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. And burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of what? Kindness. With bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on the jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. This is the heart of God for his people, friends. Notice what the Lord says here. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. Oh, I love that statement, don't you? Love that statement. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. It's like the Lord doesn't want them going back by the place that they originally came from. The Lord brings his people out. What happens though? Assyria shall be their king. In other words, God's going to use Assyria to be the means of dealing with his own people. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. This is strong discipline. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Well, is this the end of the story then? I thought... God's love was continual. Look at the next verse. The Lord says in verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. That's the reason God doesn't destroy Ephraim. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. 
and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What do we begin with? We begun with mentioning about the Lord gathering his people back to himself. Dear friends, Psalm 107 is a lesson in understanding the nature of God's love. He allows us to come to an end of ourselves in order to elicit a cry that will be the means of our being revived back in his ways. Such is the mercy of God. His love endures forever and ever and ever and ever. It is important for you and I in these days. Now, let me make it relevant as we close. We are living in days where love is in very short supply. Genuine love. We hear songs about love left, right and centre and you know immediately it's nothing to do with love. We know in the last days betrayal is going to take place. We know in the last days the love of many will what? Grow cold. We know that there's going to be trouble and difficulty and hardship and all the rest of it. If you don't come through to the place where you really receive the love of God in your heart and believe it, it's going to be very difficult to stand in the last days, isn't it? But if you know whom you have believed and believe that he is able to keep that which you have committed to him, if you're persuaded that he is able, then you'll be able to withstand in the last days. Will you not? May the Lord so fashion our hearts. May we be brothers and sisters that receive the love of God that we might actually be a blessing firstly to God but then to one another within the body of Christ. If you know you're loved, you will love. <laughs> you will. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. May God add his blessing to this word and if any of you are going through dry times, hardship, difficulty, remember you know if you are the Lord's that his love endures forever. May the Lord add his blessing to this word and apply it as his spirit shows us in our own lives. Amen. Father, we want to thank you this morning that we've been able to focus on these examples, these four examples in Psalm 107. We pray that you would apply these scriptures to our hearts. And we pray that we would rejoice in the glory of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. We thank you for gathering us. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that you haven't forsaken us or abandoned us to our own foolish ways. We know that, Lord, you don't, condi you don't condone any sin in our lives, nor do you think little of it. But we thank you that your discipline deals with our wrong ways and brings us back. Lord, help us not to have defective views of your love that are just shallow and commonplace. Help us to hold precious the ways of your loving kindness in all of our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.